Welcome to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. My name is Lauren Bongiorno, nationally board certified health coach and founder and CEO of Risely Health, where we help people and families impacted by type 1 diabetes take ownership over their lives so that they can transform with more freedom and confidence. Everyone has a different reason to be here. You might be seeking knowledge, support, or community, but at your core, I know that you long for something deeper. You're here for transformation. And that's what the Reclaim Your Rise podcast is all about. In general, managing diabetes in your child is like managing any other issue that arises in your family. And one thing that is, I think, so important is just assuming the best in your partner, assuming the best of the intention. And it's because I think without that, it really is so easy to when you're exhausted and and fed up with diabetes and just all that you know life has to offer to assume that everybody's just doing their best a quick reminder before we start the show that nothing you hear on the reclaim your rise podcast should be a substitute for personalized professional medical advice please always consult your physician or other medical professional before making any changes to your diet insulin dosages or healthcare plan Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Reclaim Your Rise show. This is your host, Lauren Bongiorno, and today we have a very special episode for you parents and caregivers. So this is actually a Zoom interview I did last year pre-having a podcast that I had on my old site as a free download for people to listen to, and it got so many downloads that I figured, why not give it a more permanent place on the podcast? And to give you more context, this episode is an interview with Lacey, who lives in Chicago, with her husband Brian and three boys Ethan, Gabriel, and Max. Side note here, they're actually moving to Italy for Brian's work and that is, we should have Lacey back on just to talk about navigating diabetes in a foreign country and all what all that entails. And on the episode, we have Doug who lives in Connecticut with his wife Gina and two kids, Sabrina and Todd. Lacey's son Ethan was diagnosed at 20 months old and is now 8, and Doug's daughter Sabrina was diagnosed at 9 and is now 13. I coached both families for over two years, and their growth in mindset, managing numbers, and transferring ownership to both Ethan and Sabrina from the time we first started working together has been so tremendous, so I wanted to share their journeys with you. And in this episode, we talk about so much, navigating different management parenting styles, finding balance with food and blood sugars, how they handle leaving leaving their child in someone else's care, whether it's a school nurse, a parent of a child's friend, or a babysitter, the impact of teaching kids to strive for perfection with their T1D, gaps in endo appointments and relationships with your endo, and trial net, what that's like getting family members tested, we go over a lot. So since this is a recording on Zoom and we had to piece some things together to make it fit for the podcast, the episode is going to start with Doug's answer to me asking what his biggest fears were after Sabrina's diagnosis and what helped them overcome those fears. So if you are ready, let's rise. Two biggest fears that we had. Gosh, there was a lot of fears, I guess, right in the beginning. There's so many unknowns when it all happened. You know, I think for us, I don't think we had a complete picture of just the daily 
work we had to do um, as it relates to type one diabetes and just managing it. And, um, you know, maybe that was our biggest fear was, you know, sort of, it was, we knew it was something that sort of was going to go on and on for a long period of time, right? If there's a cure, maybe not forever, but for a certainly a long period of time. Um, so that was, I think, fear number one. And then I guess just the general fear of just, you know, can we keep Sabrina as healthy as possible, right? Knowing that there's other, if you don't control the type one diabetes, which we knew nothing about at the time, I mean, literally we knew nothing about, you know, just, are we going to be able to do it, right? Can we keep her healthy? Can we avoid having other side effects, um, you know, other issues? And hopefully we're, we're doing that. But I think that was because we didn't know a lot about it. We didn't know a lot about how to control it. We didn't know a lot about, is it controllable? You know, that was, that was a concern. Yeah. And I think that a lot of parents feel that same way, Doug. And what do you think the greatest thing, what what thing helped you really overcome those fears and how long did it take to overcome those fears? Yeah. So depends on the day as far as how long it takes to overcome the fears because the little things creep in every so often. But, um, you know, I I guess just education, right. Helped us. Right. And, And we got introduced to you really early. Someone that I work with happened to go to some, I think yoga class, maybe that you taught or something. And she's like, you know, she's like, this is a great coincidence, but I just had this teacher and she talked about, she's a coach and maybe you should meet her. And we, so we met you really early, which maybe is not the case for a lot of families. And I think that was a real, a real blessing for us. Not that our endocrinologist wasn't helpful, but just for us, we had early and pretty frequent access to you and you were able to answer our questions. And again, through education and understanding how to manage type one diabetes and what you can do, you know, to, to anticipate um, or avoid having highs or lows, you know, was helpful. And I think over time you, I don't want to say you master it because I don't think we have, but you learn more and you're in in all of us, right. It's not just myself. It's my wife. It's Sabrina. It's even Todd. (laughs) And you learn over time what works, what doesn't work. And that doesn't mean (laughs) you're going to avoid highs and lows, right. It just means that when you have highs and lows, you can you adjust, you know what to do, and it, it feels more controllable. And I think that feeling of being able to control as much as you can gives you comfort, recognizing that it's not completely in your control, but a, bit, but a lot of it is, right? And it's choices. And then I think that's the other real challenge as a parent is, right, it, it, it is Sabrina who is mostly dealing with this, right? We, we are dealing with it too and helping her and coaching her and providing her all the support we can. But right, she's a child and we want her to have a healthy relationship with food and be able to make great choices for the long term and, you know, going into complete parent mode. And I'm very analytical, like trying to analyze every single number and manage it in that way, like might, might not be the right thing for, it might be the right thing for the day, but it might not be the right thing for the long term. And that's sort of a balance. And you, know, you asked about how my wife and I are different. I mean, that's probably one, one way where I need to curb my, not that she's not analytical because she is, but, you know, like, as a child, right, you're not going to manage it as you would as an adult, probably. And that's something you have to be aware of. Yeah. And we're definitely going to dive into relationship with food and food in general later on. So um, I'm glad that you brought that up now. And what about you, Lacey? What, are, what were the two biggest fears that you had when Ethan was diagnosed and what helped you overcome them? So ours were a little bit different because he was so little. I mean, he wasn't even two. He was sleeping in a crib at the hospital. So Um, I would say the first couple of months, actually, the fear did not feel as acute. We were like, we got this, we can do this. And then about three months in it, we knew enough. We knew just enough to know how scared we should be. (laughs) You know what I mean? 
So I would say right around three months in, we had like a short-term fear and a long-term fear. And the short-term was like, how are we going to send this child to preschool? How is he going to have some modicum of independence when there's, you know, we don't have like public preschools around here for that age group. So there was not going to be a school nurse. There was not going to be anybody who sort of managed his care, who was a professional. And then the second fear was more long-term and that was endurance. Like, is he going to have the endurance to go through the daily stress? You know, each is like just, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. You know what I mean? And are we going to have the endurance to manage that? He was, again, being so little, there was so, we knew like, you know, even now he doesn't remember not being diabetic, which in some ways is a blessing in some ways isn't. But that, that fear of like, is he going to be able to manage this long-term now that we know just how much stress and anxiety and work it is to manage it. And I think like Doug, we got through it also with education and time. The, it, a lot of it is just time. You, you make so many mistakes at the beginning. Oh my God, we've made so many mistakes. And it's funny, I start off every 504 meeting, whether it's the preschool or at his elementary school now. And I say to them, you are going to make mistakes. We make mistakes. Ethan makes mistakes. The key is not that everybody goes through without making mistakes. The key is just that you're watching and somebody's always watching. Somebody's always, you know, paying attention to catch the mistake. And so for us, it was time, it was experience and it was knowledge. And it was also finding the boundaries that we could work within. And that is, you know, such an interesting point to bring up. There's one thing when you're controlling your child's diabetes, um, and for the ages that Ethan and Sabrina are, you're pretty much the, the main, you know, control controlling their blood sugars, how much insulin they're getting. And that's a lot of pressure on you both. Um, but how do you handle leaving your kids in someone else's care, whether that's the school nurse, the teacher, a family member, a grandparent, uh, or even like a parent of one of their friends when they go play over their house. Doug, do you want to answer that one first? Yeah. And my answer I'm sure will be different than Lacey's. And I think as the children grow, the answer changes, you know, early on, that was a big fear of ours. And my daughter plays, plays a lot of sports, including soccer and tennis. And I remember that was my wife and I both work, which is relevant to the answer to the question as well. So I remember talking to the endocrinologist about it and she was sort of like saying, look, you know, someone, one of you or someone is going to be there at every single practice because you need, you know, in case she has a lot, like you're, someone's going to be there. And that we, I guess I, I interpreted that quite literally when it was first told to me and in practice, you know, there was someone there, obviously it's not in my mind at first, I'm like, gosh, it has to be one of us. And like, you know, um, and, and I think that that changed over time. And as she controls, her number herself and we have more confidence in her and certainly her coaches are aware of that she has type one diabetes, but you know, are they there ready with the pen if they needed it? No, I mean, we've never had to use that by the way, since Sabrina's had it, thank goodness. Um, and hopefully we'll not have to use it anytime soon, but you know, that was that, speaking of fears, like that was one of the fears early on was like, well, geez, what, you know, what if that happens? And Sabrina is, was at an age where she was independent and going to school and, you know, you're not always on top of her. And, you know, I think over time we adapted to it, but we you do end up trusting the people that are there. We initially had a great nurse. I think now, frankly, like now Sabrina's 12 and she has a different nurse, different school. Like her nurse is frankly not 
very involved at all and Sabrina is managing it. But again, it's a, it, it, it's a journey and it takes time and it's not, it, it's different for every person that you're entrusting your child to. And it's different as at every age that they're at and how comfortable they are themselves, right? Managing their own blood sugars. It's not perfect. It's not always completely comfortable, but you know, we, we manage through it situation by situation, I guess. Yeah. And on that note, it's such a good topic to bring up as well about the transference of independence to them. I mean, Lacey, I remember doing, uh, speaking at some kind of diabetes event in Chicago a few years ago, and you invited me over to come to dinner and I watched Ethan, you know, eat a, I think it was like a Clementine and him put in his, you know, pump exactly what the carbs were. And you just double checked it. And he was like, go. And he was good. And then he ate his Clementine. And it was like, he was so young. He had to be, you know, four and a half, five at that, at that time. And I think that because we work with so many clients who are also have older and have had diabetes for 10, 15, 20 years, one big theme that we see is the more you place on them, the pressure of like fear of like you can't go low and you can't go high. And this is why you need to be with the nurse. And this is why you need an aid at school. And uh, like that, in, they internalize that. And it takes them maybe a harder time when they want to go out and do things or eventually go to college to take back that independence on their own. Um, and so teaching them that at, at an early age is, is so you know critical in my opinion as a coach and what I've seen. Um, but Lacey, for you, you know, how do you handle that? And the balance between giving the authority and control to the nurse or the the babysitter or whatever it is and teaching Ethan what his body needs in that sense. So I'm going to start with the first, the second part of what you just said. And for me, it's all about agency. I don't have diabetes. Ryan uh, doesn't have diabetes. And even though he was diagnosed so young and we had so much control and Doug referred to this a little bit when he spoke first, but for us, it's all about the long game. So yes, the number today is important in that, you know, we pre-bolus and we dose and we do all of those things to, to control the number the best that we can. But every decision that we make in the back of my head is not, what is this doing for diabetes right now? It's how is this going to affect how he feels about having diabetes when he's 16? Because, so I'm a, I'm a high school teacher and you know, I know how, what a high schooler's job is. Their job is to find the boundaries, push the boundaries, you know, they're the front of their brains is, is not fully developed yet. And so I didn't want diabetes to be one of those things where I so tightly controlled him and his movements and what he ate that that needed to be his point of rebellion when he's doing his job when he's 16, because that is his job, you know? And so for us, if he says, I want an orange and it's snack time, great, you can have that. Um, I wanna go to my friend's house. Okay, let's find a way to make that work. For me, it's all about flexibility. If we can do it, we do it. Or I think to myself, would I, Brian and I say this to ourselves all the time. Would we let Gabriel do that? Would we let Max do that? Okay, then we gotta find a way to make Ethan able to do that also. And so sometimes that's meant we kind of figure out what he's going to eat beforehand or what he's going to eat when he's there, or we find a way so that somebody can FaceTime the adult if the adult hasn't been trained in diabetes, or we write out instructions, or we actually went on vacation and we left all three of our kids. And so I made 
every single meal and every single snack. And I put it labeled in the fridge with all the carbs so that it would be easy for our amazing parents who learned how to do all of this to feed him. But I, it's so important to me that we use neutral language when we talk about diabetes because and that has to do with the number. Like we don't really talk about, we never say you have a good number or you're a bad number. In fact, we've kind of had to help other people around him think about that as well. Like, is he having good numbers today or is he having bad numbers today? Well, I don't want him to think about them as good or bad. I want him to think about it as just a point of data, information that helps you know how to bolus or how to change things for next time, or even just in this one moment, you need more insulin or less. Because it's so important to me that he sees I can do these things fine. I just either have to be more flexible or I have to prepare a little bit more in advance. Oh, so, so both of your answers, there is so much there. Where I want to take this actually is an example, real time. We, we are working with a, a client of ours right now, a mom and a dad. They're actually both doctors and they think very analytically and very data-driven. And so they, their son was just diagnosed two months ago. He's seven and they're a very active family. They are very you know, healthy eaters, eat tons of fruit. And his diagnosis, there was such like a control or, or the sense of losing control. And the mom that we're, we primarily work with, she, her biggest challenge that we're working through with her right now is like letting go of the perfection over the numbers because A, there's, there isn't going to be perfection and you're going to be let down every single time, but also B, understanding that, you know, you giving him five low carb snacks to choose from and him crying every time. Like I want to, I want to have that cupcake with my friends where I'm at the party and I, and I want to have, even if it's fruit, right. And yes, it's harder to bolus for, but you know, just want to ask your experience about how you specifically really let go of the perfection with their numbers, because as parents, that's you know, you're, if you're primarily managing them right now, that's a lot of pressure on you. I think I learned that from you, Lauren, right? I, I think you were the one that, that talked to us about like healthy relationship with food and how important that is. And Lacey's long-term answer, I learned from you, right? Like I, I completely agree with, with that. So, and, and we, and I think the biggest surprise to people not in our family that interact with Sabrina or go to a birthday party with her, whatever it may be. And you know, there's always, you always get the question of like, well, can she have a piece of cake or whatever? And they are, they're always surprised by the answer. I was like, we let her eat whatever she wants, right? There, she has no limit. If she wants to have ice cream. She has ice cream. She has it frequently as Lauren knows. And like, you just have to cover and do what you have to do, depending on whatever it is and what the fat content is. And you think through, right, the scenario. So we don't limit that. And that, that, that is what the long-term mindset that Lacey was speaking about. So, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that, I guess that's how we, that's how we deal with it. I think in general, not relating to diabetes specifically, striving for perfectionism teaches kids that they're not allowed to make mistakes. And when kids learn they're not allowed to make mistakes, they don't take risks. They don't try new things. They're, they are afraid to go out into the world. And I, though I think all parents would say, we want our children to take risks. We want our children to try new things. We want them to spread their wings and, and not be afraid to just be. And what I had to learn early on is that my very type A teacher personality, where, you know, frankly, many of us, if we tried hard enough, 
and we worked hard enough and we learned enough, we were able to get in most situations, the outcome that we wanted. Diabetes does not play by those rules. And so I could either accept that and have for my child these values that are so important to me and my husband or not. And because the, the, the fact that diabetes doesn't play by those rules isn't going to change. So that meant I had to change my mindset about what it looked like to, you know, quote unquote, control diabetes. And so instead of having these rules about what the number had to look like and what he could eat or not eat, we had to come up with like a set of boundaries instead that we try to stick to as much as possible. And that is we pre-bolus. We, if his number is higher, we try to pre-bolus a little bit longer. Um, we don't skip injections. We, on Sundays, Brian and I try, we don't always do this, but on Sundays we look over the clarity to see, is there anything in here that we need to change? And by having these rules of how we approach diabetes, it changed our anxiety to the number. I want to take a quick intermission to talk about finding a cure for type 1 diabetes and to give a special shout out to the Diabetes Research Institute Foundation who is sponsoring the podcast. I recently talked to one of the DRI scientists and they shared with me that there is a lot of focus nowadays on finding a quote unquote technology cure for diabetes, but that DRI's main focus has been and always will be to find a biological cure. They don't want to create a band-aid, they want to get to the root. When the DRI was founded in 1971, it was founded on the belief that the combined forces of science and philanthropy could achieve this bold vision of a world without diabetes. I've personally seen DRI grow so much over the last 20 plus years, and one of the most recent growth moments has been Sean Kramer coming in as CEO. And if you don't know him and want to know more about who Sean is behind the curtain, go to the DRI Instagram page. It's linked in the show notes at Diabetes Research and check out the 60 second rapid fire Q&A video that him and I did. It's so entertaining. It was so fun to do. And you'll get to hear the advice he'd give to his newly diagnosed self, his favorite hard to bowl is for meals, his favorite injection spot and more. And lastly, I want to share that funding is the driving force that allows the DRI scientists to speed their discoveries up. So visit diabetesresearch.org slash give today and make a donation or send your family that link for when they ask for what to get you for your birthday. Thank you so much, DRI, and I hope that you'll check them out. And what's interesting is when we were first diagnosed when your child's first diagnosed diabetes, or for me, you know, when I was first diagnosed and all the years you're going to the endocrinologist, no matter how great they are at being supportive of you, wherever their child's number is, there is also a standard that they set in a way for what their expectations are of you, what their expectations are for A1C. And it is very data-driven. It's what's the percent in range? Why did you go high here? What you know, the A1C either went up or down from last time. And so it sounds like what you're both alluding to is quality of life as well and longevity. And like Lacey said, playing the long game. So my question for you is both of you love your endocrinologist. And with that, what gaps were you missing from your endocrinologist that you found through coaching? Yeah, I think the biggest gap was access, right? It's just, we, we speak to you more frequently. And I think early on, that was really important for us. I mean, I even remember a vacation where I just was with my daughter alone and I was texting you because 
I had some questions and you were answering my questions, which was super helpful. Like, I'm not going to do that with the endocrinologist. I don't have access to her to do that. So I think that that's probably the the biggest thing was just being able to have access, being able to get our questions answered. We talked earlier about how important learning was to get us to feel like we were in control and we could do this, right? And I think if I was only talking to the endocrinologist on the whatever the, that pace is, the learning would have been slower. The feeling of not being in control would have been longer, um, and that's not what we what we wanted. So that was probably the biggest impact. Uh, we've actually switched endocrinologists twice now, and in fact, my one of one piece of advice that I would give to a newly diagnosed family is don't be afraid to switch based on what your needs are in in that season. And so I actually have loved all of our endocrinologists, but we didn't necessarily always get what we needed in that season. So when we were first diagnosed, when Ethan was first diagnosed, I loved on a personal level, the endocrinologist. And when he uh, had his first appointment, his A1C was after his, after his diagnosis, like three months later, his A1C was in the sixes. And then she kind of laughed and she was like, oh, don't ever expect to see that number again. She said, he's honeymooning, it's never gonna happen again. And I thought, oh geez, like <laughs> that's not the goal that I have for him, that there's no possible way for him to be healthy and be a kid and play the long game and and have a a certain amount of control over his diabetes. So we ended up switching to the University of Chicago. I, again, loved the doctor and his endocrinologist uh, and the diabetes nurse, but they gave gave us a certain amount of tools. But it wasn't the, and when I say control, I don't mean control over his numbers at this point. It wasn't the, the sense of control that I felt we needed through education. And when we, you know, there was no, we didn't meet with a nutritionist, didn't meet with um, a psychologist. And I think that's what we got when we work with you, Lauren, is somebody who helped us understand, okay, there's more here than just the data. We never learned about fat. We never learned about protein. We never learned how to look at what each food that he was eating did to his blood sugar so that we could either say, okay, this may not be worth it in this moment, or no, this is worth it in this moment psychologically. So we have to figure out how to bolus that to make it work. Um, and I think that's, I think that's what the biggest piece for us that we were missing was from the endocrinologist. The other evolution I think that's maybe worth pointing out for us is early on, we would go to the endocrinologist. And frankly, this is what like all any doctor from, for myself or my wife or anybody in our family, whereas like you go to the doctor and then you listen to what they say. Not to say we don't listen to our endocrinologist because we do, but now when we go to the endocrinologist, she'll make suggestions and it's more of like a negotiation, right? Like there's much more back and forth going on. You know, she's saying, well, why didn't you do this? Well, we didn't do that. We have a reason. Here's what we saw. This is why we didn't do it. And this is what actually happened. And yes, you're looking at that particular day and that particular data, but that particular day and data is not really the data set when you look at it on a monthly basis. And there's this whole dialogue that's going on. Whereas I think early on in Sabrina's diagnosis, we would go and whatever changes she recommended, we were popping those right in. Again, I'm not advocating not listening to endocrinologists, but I'm advocating, again, learning as much as you can you're, we're closer to the numbers than the endocrinologist is. We know what happened on the individual days, which she's typically looking at only like the last week, than the endocrinologist actually knows. So it's, it's really be feeling comfortable having that dialogue, stating your case as to why you think 
whatever the, the 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 basil should be whatever it is or whatever you're talking about and um and, and making sure you're, you're talking it completely through and taking the time to do that as opposed to just again like we were doing early on popping in whatever the recommendation was without having that full knowledge and that's it right there like our goal our coaching staff our goal is when we work with parents or individuals with type one it's how can we empower you to understand your body so well so that when you're sitting with the endocrinologist you're not just deferring to anything that they're saying you're listening to what they're saying and then you're participating and having being an active participant in a conversation with them bringing up maybe your concerns or what you're actually noticing that maybe they are not aware of and it sounds like you both you know are at that level where you feel empowered you feel educated you know your children's bodies so well so you're able to feel that sense of you know an equal partnership with your with your endo versus just listen blindly listening to any you know any suggestion that sometimes may not be the right change based on what you're seeing from day to day. And with that, I think that we we believe that we believe really in pairing research and science with what works best for your family and that quality of life. And you both have done an incredible job marrying these two, the education, the science, but also the letting them have a cupcake if they want or ice cream every night, whatever it is. And so in the realm of food, which can be definitely a tricky topic to navigate. And I find in the online space and in parent of T1D online community, like on Facebook groups, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of judgment of you're letting your kid eat that. Like, didn't they have a high blood sugar? Like their A1C is going to be higher and, and things like that. And so how do you approach things like carbs and desserts and nutrients and your perspectives on that and low carb that too? You know, it's funny what you say about the diabetes online community, because when Ethan was first diagnosed, I was like obsessively checking those boards and learning. And it's such a negative space in so many ways for parents with children, because there seem to be two factions. There's the low carb. If you feed your child carbs, it is a form of child abuse. And then there is the child first, diabetes second. And both of those groups have such a negative view of each other. You know, like one group thinks the other one cares only about food and not the child. And the other one thinks that the other parents are, you know, only care about their child's happiness and not about their health. And it gets so ugly and so nasty um, to the point where we, we completely got rid of all of that stuff because it didn't seem to actually help me do what I wanted to do with him, which was to say, listen, kid, like you have a chronic illness. You have to manage it, but you, we don't have to, we don't have to be burdened by it. And in so many ways, those, it, 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 diabetes feels like such an incredible burden. And that's what we've tried to take off of him and, our, and ourselves, honestly, because like, who wants to live like that, you know? And so for the way that we approach food is we don't like really eat this, you know, the standard American diet in, in air quotes. We at home, we eat the way that we would, even if Ethan doesn't have diabetes, we just, we try and keep it like, pretty plant-based, but like 
he is done with school on Friday, we're going to have an ice cream cake. And he's at his friend's house or he's at school. In fact, I put in his 504. He can eat whatever anybody else is eating because they never wanted a teacher or a substitute or anybody to say to him, like, wait, 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 are you sure that you can eat that? Like, I put it specifically in writing. His preschool knew it. His friends know it. His friend's parents know it. Um, because again, for me, it all just goes back to balance. We're going to eat in our house. We're going to eat you know, how we're going to eat. And that includes all the adults and all the kids. And we're going to eat on a schedule and that includes all the adults and all the kids. But you know what, if like we want cheeseburgers for dinner tonight, we're going to have cheeseburgers for dinner. And like Doug was saying, you temp basil up, you know, you find the strategies that help you manage that without feeling deprived, without feeling like diabetes is in control of us. And that every decision we have to make has to be factored in by diabetes because that is that took the burden off from us when we really set those parameters for how we're going to live within that diabetes space it really changed our relationship with food our kids relationship with food like you don't want to eat that you don't have to eat that you want to eat that we can eat that we just it was so important for us to take some of that judgment out of all of it like and it helped me too because i think a lot of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, there's so much judgment about food. I don't have diabetes, but I certainly felt the judgment around food. And um, it's kind of helped all of us just remove that. And food is just food. So that's how we want him to see it too. Yeah. And just maybe to be more specific, Lauren, because I don't think I said it this way, like we don't spend any time online. We're not on any boards. We're not looking at what other people think about diabetes. And frankly, we're trying to live our lives without diabetes, even though it's a big part of our lives. Like we're, we're not thinking about diabetes 24 hours a day. Like we're, we're managing Sabrina's number actively, but like we're trying to let her right. Have a life that not, that's not the focal point on a daily basis. Yeah. And I think one commonality that we have between mm-hmm. all of the parents that we have coached in the past and coached now is that they're all willing to a learn and assume that like, and want to learn like what they know that they don't know and B that they want to figure out a way to just increase their quality of life as a family worry less and stop obsessing so much over that perfection and um, really getting to know their child's body. And that is often enough for them. So the way I look at it as, you know, if you're coming in, most parents are coming in knowing, let's say, you know, 40, 45, 50%, maybe let's get them up to 80% of fine tuning so that when they're having cupcakes, when they're eating pizza, when they're, you know, having activity, their numbers aren't maybe fluctuating as much. And then always understanding that there is going to be a 20% when, diabetes isn't going to be the priority because you have a million things going on. And maybe the numbers that day aren't 75% in range, maybe they're 50% in a range, but knowing that that's not the overall, right. That's just a moment in time. And that's the exception almost. So with that, I love to hear about the differences in parenting styles between uh, Lacey, you and Brian, and, and also, if you want to share the interesting fact about Brian, I would love for you to take this opportunity now to share that. Sure. So, so I don't know, four or five months after Ethan was diagnosed, we switched uh, his endocrinologist to the University of Chicago. And the, we got the head of the clinic, like the, the doctor who's in charge of the, the whole shebang. And he said, you know, like we're doing this trial net thing here. You guys are really too old to, but we're, would you get tested? And we're like, sure, why not? 
So he calls, it's like the day before Thanksgiving. And he says to Brian, he's like, well, your wife is clear, but you have all the antibodies. <laughs> so, so what we think that means is that sometime between now and the next, you know, this was five, six years ago already, like should be sometime within the next three or four years, Brian will be diagnosed with type one diabetes. Um, and that's like, Ethan is so excited for that to happen. <laughs> he's like, brings it up every once in a while. And it's like, I can't wait to have a partner in this and we'll do it together, dad. Um, so that's been sort of interesting. And yet we chose not to have our other children tested by TrialNet because uh, the waiting around for diabetes to happen is awful. <laughs> so I know a lot of people feel a lot of comfort from TrialNet. And as somebody who is waiting for another diagnosis in my family, that actually doesn't bring me a lot of comfort where uh, Brian has done all sorts of trials and um, he did an oral insulin trial. He's done a delay onset trial. And so we'll see if any of that sort of comes to fruition. But yeah, that's been sort of an interesting piece to our family diabetes dynamic. And uh, can you remind me of the other part of your question? Yeah, to explain the differences maybe. Oh, the difference in parenting. Yeah. Okay, so here's what works for us. I don't know how everybody else feels about this, but we kind of have like a P1, P2 mindset, like parent one, parent two, who's in charge at any given moment. Uh, because the last thing we wanted was to be at each other about who, what should be happening at any given moment. So when Ethan was diagnosed, I remember saying to the endocrinologist, it was like a Wednesday, how, how am I supposed to go back to work tomorrow? And she goes, she tapped me on the shoulder and she goes, oh, honey, you have a baby diabetic. You aren't going back to work. And I was like, well, what do I have to go back to work? You know? Like one of them wasn't an option for our family. Now it was an option for our family. And so I've kind of gone back to work here and there, but I was really the primary caregiver. I saw the numbers every day. I was preparing the food. I was dosing the insulin. And so Brian in those moments would kind of defer to me. We would discuss it. We would talk about it together and, and try and figure it out that way. But there was never any like fighting about it. That was really important to us. Um, especially because the first endocrinologist we went to was like, you need to start seeing a marriage counselor immediately because like a huge number of parents when their child is diagnosed, uh, go through a divorce. And so you, we were like super hyper cognizant of that. And the other thing is we give each other grace. We both made really big mistakes. I mean, the, the biggest one we made was when I gave Ethan Humalog instead of Lantus the first three months he was diagnosed and it was bedtime. And I gave him like a unit and a half of of Humalog instead of Lantus, which translated at that time for him, 150 carbs. He was two and a half years old. And I think Brian could have been like, what's wrong with you? Like, how did you not check? How, like now we gotta be up all night feeding him teaspoons of Sprite, which is what we did all night long. Um, but we really give each other grace because first of all, we didn't want Ethan to ever think like, oh my God, my diabetes. My parents are fighting about me all the time. We didn't want him to feel that burden. And second, we didn't want to be fighting. So um, in those moments where he's in charge, I defer to him. And in those moments where I'm in charge, he defers to me. And we, and we give each other so much grace because it's hard at times. Yeah. And Doug, what about you and Gina? 
That's a great answer, by the way, Lacey. I completely agree with so much of what you said and the the whole grace part, like we work, like I can't say we're perfect at that, but like that's, that's a huge part of it, right? Like just mistakes happen and you have to kind of work together and it's, it's without question a team. And I'm, I'm totally with you on the whole fighting part of it. Like that's not how you want anyone to feel or you're fighting because, you know, the kids feel like you're, you're fighting because of them, like all horrible, um, really, really tough stuff. So I think for us differences, Gene and I are both pretty analytical. So I think we both come at from like trying to solve a puzzle, but I think Gene has helped me have more of that long-term mindset. We've talked a lot about today, which is like, you know, you don't need to get the puzzle right every single day and every single moment. And like, let's think about the long-term and make sure we're, you know, what do we do wrong? How do we learn from it? What do you do next time? It's funny you bring up the parent one, parent two idea, because it's something Gene and I just talked about, which which is this, and, I, and I'm maybe sensitive to it from a little bit of a different angle than what you described, but like Sabrina's at school, right? Like, so in between class, she can like look at her phone and I'll text her a suggestion, right? Maybe you should tempo. I don't know how much I have on board, but which by the way, I wish we had, but nonetheless, that's another topic. But I think, you know, I don't know how much I have on board. Maybe th- think about correcting or maybe think about temp up or lunch is coming, so whatever it may be. But Gina will do the same thing, right? So one of the things I was talking about, well, geez, maybe we should just have, I'll be like Monday through Wednesday and you can be Thursday through whatever. But having both of us telling her different things to do probably is not maybe the right thing. So anyway, we, we have not done that yet. I think it's a great idea and something that we're, we're trying to figure out, um, but just not to overwhelm Sabrina, who's obviously trying, has her own ideas and is trying to manage her own, her own numbers. I think we, 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 manage it pretty similarly, actually. I mean, again, Gina's helped me from having a long, more of that long-term mindset, but like we both have good days and bad days. And there's days when I'm more tired and maybe I get more frustrated with not pre-bolusing or whatever mistake we made on that particular day. And there's days when Gina might get more frustrated, right? And there's days, frankly, when Sabrina might get more frustrated. And I think that's when it's having that open dialogue and just saying, hey, let, you know, take a step back, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it. Or, you know, I'll, you know, I'll talk with Sabrina or she'll talk with Sabrina or whatever. Sometimes Sabrina needs to have a talk with us and that's fine too. But uh, you know, it's sort of, it's working as a team. It's giving each other grace. I thought Lacey said that so well and completely agree. And uh, you know, teamwork at the end of the day. I just want to say too, I think in general, managing diabetes in your child is like managing any other issue that arises in your family. And one thing that is, I think, so important is just assuming the best in your partner, assuming the best of the intention. And it's because I think without that, it really is so easy to, when you're exhausted and, and fed up with diabetes and just all that you know, life has to offer to assume that everybody's just doing their best. Um, and the only other piece of that that I wanna say is actually Brian and I aren't like-minded all the time in, in with diabetes, not, not like mine. We have different strengths. I should say, I am not particularly analytical with num- Like I took the same math class twice in college. <laughs> the math part of diabetes was very difficult for me. This is why I'm an English teacher and not a math teacher. That was not my strength. And so Brian really took hold of the part that he was really good at, which was the math and the analytics. And we would talk about it, but I wouldn't really fuss fuss with him too much on that because that was not my strength. My strength was really much more the carb counting, the meal planning, and he didn't really 
come at me with a whole lot of that because he knew that wasn't his strength. And so we really play to each other's strengths in that way, which I think is really important too. like find the piece of it that you're good at and let the other person shine. Oh, so wonderful. I want to get both Brian and Gina on next time and see what they say. (laughs) Oh gosh. Well, last question for you both. And it doesn't have to be a long answer, just whatever comes to mind. It could be an example of a situation or just a motto, um, a philosophy. But what does raising an empowered child with T1D look like for you and your family? Yeah, for for me, I mean, we, we said this from day one, like we wanted Sabrina to be able to do anything she wanted to do. We talked about it a little bit earlier, right, in one of Lacey's answers. We want her to be able to do whatever it is she wanted to do. We don't want diabetes to be to limit her in any way. Right. And that's not just talking about food choices. I know we talked a lot about that today, but we don't want that to stop her from anything, whether that's a trip or a vacation or an activity or you name it. Right. So for us, it's about eliminating any obstacles that would prevent her from doing something she wants to do. I would say for me, it's knowing that he's in charge. So I want him to an empowered adult. In in education, we do something called backwards design. And you figure out what you want it to look like at the end of the process, and then you make choices along the way to get that person there. So for us, like if we want an empowered type one diabetic adult, it looks like knowing that you're gonna make mistakes, knowing that you have choices to make. So in any given moment, you can choose what's the priority in that moment. And to know that with a little bit of flexibility and preparation and a lot of knowledge, you can do whatever you want. Sort of like what Doug was saying. That's, that was so important to us that, that he knew that he's, he's in charge. And um, it's funny when Brian found out Ethan was first diagnosed, he was like, we gotta do something to show him that. And I was like, okay, what do you wanna do? And he said, uh, we're gonna climb the highest peak in every state. And I was like, what? What do you mean you're gonna climb? Just a second, you're gonna climb the tallest peak in every state. He's like, I'm gonna take him to every state and we're gonna go to the high point. And they've done 15 so far and he's seven and they're, they've you know got 35 to go and we're doing another four this summer. And so um, we want to model that for him. And that was just a, the most important thing for us. Lacey, really quickly, can you share the story with one of the peaks that he did that you were mentioning to me the other day? Yeah. When you when you checked when I when we were really in our coaching program, um, we were like early in the coaching program. Ethan was really little, and uh, he, he's like two something. And we were doing the second high point ever. We were doing the high point in Illinois, which is like four hours from our house. And Ethan's blood sugar was four hundred. And I was, by the way, I was eight months pregnant when Ethan was diagnosed with our second kid. So we had like this little three month old baby with us and a carrier and, and all of a sudden his blood sugar is like shooting up skyrocket. I'm like, Lauren, we got to go back. Like we cannot do this. I can't manage a baby and a two year old who's got 400 blood sugar. And now he's out of the bathroom and he's upset because he doesn't feel good. And she was like, no, you're going to change his pot. You're going to give him an injection. You're going to climb the high point and you're going to call me when it's done. And crying on the phone and we did we changed his pod we gave him an injection we did the high point and you know that one will always sort of be a moment for us of like okay we got to practice what we preach if it's really important to us that it doesn't stop Ethan then it can't stop us no matter what that 
looks like in this very moment. Well, what a great way to end. I love that story. And I forgot about it until you reminded me of it the other day when you frantically reached out and you're like, nope, you got this. So it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you both today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for everybody listening and for the parents tuned in. I hope that hearing from Lacey and hearing from Doug, you're able to have some kind of takeaway and at the end of the day, validate your experiences as a, as a parent and know that um, you're always doing the best with what you have. So thank you so much, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Okay, I completely forgot how incredible that interview was. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did re-listening to it. And if you did and you are not yet subscribed to the podcast, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to the Reclaim Your Rise show. We would love to have you in this community as a consistent listener so we can keep serving you all of the empowerment and education and relatability around diabetes. Definitely rate it, review it wherever you listen to it to help this podcast rise and help others find it. We also have a free guide for you in the show notes below and it goes deep into blood sugar hacks. Like for parents of t kids, you need this guide. You'll see that inside we go way beyond the basics and provide even action steps as well that you can implement right away with your child and family. And lastly, if you are feeling guilt with the decisions you're making for your child's management, if you struggle to understand how foods are impacting your child's body and their patterns, if you're worried about future health-related issues for them, if you struggle with blood sugar unpredictability when your child is at recess or at a friend's house or on vacation, if you're feeling really weighed down with maybe lack of sleep or lack of energy due to some correlation with diabetes, I want to invite you to look more into our next family group coaching program. It's coming up right around the corner over summer. This will be the fourth round of us running this group program and the emotional and tactical benefits that parents get out of this program is unmatched and beyond anything that we ever expected. So I will also link that link below in the show notes. And yeah, so thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I'll see you next week or sorry, in two weeks for another caregiver episode and have a wonderful rest of your day and bye for now. I want to thank the Diabetes Research Institute Foundation for sponsoring this episode. If you are somebody who wants to see a cure for type 1 diabetes in your lifetime, please go to diabetesresearch.org slash give to make a donation. This is the only organization me and my family fundraise for for years because this is where so much of the research is being done and the donations allow the scientists to speed up their research. Links to learn more about DRI and the work they are doing in the show notes below.